everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The View from Venus. My name is Mary Churchill, and on today's episode, I am joined by co-host Leanne Doherty and guest expert Felicia Commodore, assistant professor of educational foundations and leadership at Old Dominion University in Virginia. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Felicia about her work related to board diversity and leadership at historically black colleges and universities. Thank you so much for joining us. We are super excited about this conversation and Leanne is going to start us off with the first question. Thanks so much for being here. Leadership, what a topic, right? We could probably go on and on for hours and hours to talk about leadership, but your expertise happens to be in leadership at HBCUs. And, and it's something that I think has come up I teach at a women-centered institution, HBCUs, um, this idea of the biggest challenges facing women leaders in higher ed, maybe generally is a question we all have, but more specifically at those institutions that are already serving in underrepresented populations and the like. What, what are your key takeaways around successes and challenges in, in those areas around leadership? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question. I would say that women leaders at HBCUs do experience some of the similar issues, right, that women across higher ed are um, experiencing generally. We're thinking about gender equity um, in the presidency, thinking about pay equity in the presidency. Um, and then even, I think, um, the expectations of, of women presidents kind of thinking about what we expect them to look like, how we expect them to act kind of um, um, in a, a, one of the pieces I wrote is more of a philosophical piece to talk about this um, kind of the, the way in which we expect black women leaders in some HBC spaces to kind of represent this, these like black middle-class ideals and the way in which um, they show up and appear. And so kind of wrestling with what our perceptions are of um, good Black women leaders and bad Black women leaders, right? And wrestling with that as we move into kind of our next era of higher education and our campuses are looking different. Um, our students are um, becoming more diverse. And, and I think often when we talk about that in HBCU spaces, people automatically um, default to race, but, right. but we're, we're thinking about class, we're thinking about sexual orientation, gender representation. Um, these are becoming more diverse. And so as we look at the campuses, our leadership um, representing or reflecting who's on our campus? And, and if, if not, why is that the case? But I think specifically um, in, in the HBCU sector, um, you're, we're dealing with um, often under-resourced students. So somewhere between 60 and 70% of HBCU students are Pell Grant eligible students. Mm -hmm. And so I think presidents are really um, wrestling with how in um, a time like this an economically strained time um, with everything we have going on with the pandemic, how do we still support our students, um, both um, kind of socially, mentally, but also financially, but also um, make sure that our institutions are um, fiscally um, solvent and, and they're fiscally healthy in a world of shrinking resources. Um, and so I think women are navigating that. And, and often what we find a trend in higher education um, in the HBCU sector is that women are often brought in <clears throat> to the presidency after 
someone has really royally messed. Yeah, <laughs> there is a pattern here, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and so when it's um the we kind of call the phenomenon um, many of us in the the HBC scholar space like the cleanup woman, yeah. like these these women are brought in to clean up these kind of messes that have been made, and then after that are discarded. And so really thinking about how um, can we think more about um, supporting Black women um, in the HBCU presidential sector in a way that isn't about them just being cleanup women, right? And really thinking of them as first picks um, for institutions that are in healthy states, first picks um, for um, institutions that we may um, not normally think about women being presidents at. I mean, we're still experiencing first women presidencies yes. in, in the sector. I mean, we're experiencing that overall, but I think uh, um, when you think about them, a majority of women, of the student population at HBCs is women. Again, I go back to why isn't our leadership um, represent, repre um, a representation of our body, our student body and who's on our campus. And so, um, and then lastly, I would say married to that is the pipeline how are we getting women into the HBCU presidential pipeline? I think we've seen a few programs that have been doing a really good job of that. I think of the um, health, health program um, and, and a couple of other presidential leadership programs in the HBCU sector that have been really good at producing more Black women. Um, I would say um, ACE has a program, I think Spectrum, or, that's been doing that. But really, how do we get more Black women and more diverse representations of Black women into that pipeline so that they're ready for the presidency? We're seeing mass turnover, right, across higher ed, but really in the um, HBCU sector specifically. And the question still remains, who, who are the next presidents? And I'm not sure we know. And so really, um, we're really thinking about how do we how do we work on that and how do we prepare that next generation of women and how do we do that um, in a way in which they don't feel like they have to sacrifice their lives and their families and um, um, kind of their personal lives in order to reach this this level of leadership. As somebody who stu I, I studied gender. Polit political leadership, okay? And so when you talk about the cleanup and throwaway, that's just so resonating with me as far as, you know, these kind of intersectional frameworks of, of what you have to overcome. And then you're going to be tossed aside because you're not going to do it well enough, even if you do right. an incredible job, right? And so you just add those layers. And it, and it makes me think of too, as the ages of these women too, right? With mm -hmm. second wave feminism and how Black feminism yeah. has interceded with all this and, and where, where's the place with that and who, who and where and the legacies at HBCUs, right? Yeah. You know, that is a very different yeah. mentality, right? There's a lot more um, ceremony. There's a lot more um, engagement historically, you know, yeah. whether it, and, and uh, just all those layers. How do you, how do you just maintain that energy to be that person for so many people, right? And I, and I think, right. Um, you bring up a good point about kind of the generational shift, and this is something I've been talking about in public spaces, um, kind of Twitter and stuff, which I need to get off of so I can be more productive. But um, 
uh, in that this we're about to see, I mean, we've seen a few Gen X presidents yes. who kind of got in early in the HBC space. I think about um, Walter Kimbrough is probably the most notable one, but we have um, now we have people like Herman Felton and um, Rosalind Clark artists and, and those folks who really are solidly Gen X. But I think we're really about to see the, the a big wave right our first big wave of where a majority of our presidents will probably be from gen x um and so one of the questions i've been wrestling with with people is what does it look like for the presidency to be held by gen x and our tenured faculty to be millennials yep and so <laughs> what how how will that or will it shift or shape how we how we do college and how we do higher ed and and what campuses look like because these are different mindsets and understandings of higher ed um, of a global world of technology than we've seen before and I'm curious to see how that plays out but I think also the third component of that that we don't talk about is are the boards changing well <laughs> right and so <laughs> if the boards are still and we still see m m most average um even in the HBCU space, we're talking about most people are 60 plus. Um, they're older folks on board, they're business folks. Um, in HBCU space, you see a little more clergy representation as well. And so the, the question becomes, right, is are what boards and their understanding and their perceptions of what make a good president matching up with what campuses need and what the marketplace is calling for. And so um, I don't know that we've had that discussion yet. Um, and if boards are gonna to start to realize they need younger folks on their um, boards and that, you know, I think the stereotypically are kind of, I think there was an assumption that you don't have enough kind of money and social capital uh, to be on a board till a certain age, but I think that's changed, right? We, we're seeing people reach um, spaces of position power and resource at a much quicker pace than we have historically. And so I'll be curious to see if the boards will start to reflect that as well. But if they don't, how will that be in tension with who they hire and who they tap to be their presidents? I love that. And I, you know, when we've met in multiple spaces um, <laughs> around kind of higher ed, women in higher ed, and um, last year at ASH, you were on a couple, you know, I had listed all these presentations I wanted to go to, <laughs> and it was all virtual, right? And every time I ended up in a room, you were there. Because <laughs> it was all boards. I was really interested in boards and board diversity. Yeah. And um loved the work you were doing and continue to do. And I am interested in, um, it feels like, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, that boards are putting a lot of pressure on presidents and provosts to diversify racially the faculty, um, mm -hmm. while the boards themselves are not putting pressure on themselves to diversify the boards. Um, and so uh, when it comes to EDI work, what, what do boards need to, to know and do? Yeah, great question. And, and, and I would say, I don't think your perception is off. Although I would argue that I don't know boards are pushing um, <laughs> presidents to diversify the faculty as much as we would think they are. Um, but I, I, I do think, right? So going back a little something I said a little earlier, 
Um, most of when we look statistically, right, and we look at the demographics of boards across higher education, most of our boards are made up of older, wealthy businessmen who are white and usually cis right? And so um, if we're seeing often, I think, well, now we're, I think we're seeing a push around or more heightened discussion around, we need more diverse faculty on campus and we need to do those things because it's interest conversions, right? And so there has been more discussion about maybe putting this in the rankings that come out. Um, we're looking at donors and, and, and foundation money um, that are looking at these issues. And so there's a little bit of a, a money trail that is connected with institutions who take seriously um, issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and specifically faculty diversifying the faculty. I don't know if that money was there if we'd be having that conversation, but that's because I'm at nature a cynic. So, <laughs> but um, but I think the reason we don't <laughs> pay attention to boards is because we don't have to, right? So boards, I um, you probably heard me say this before, board, I liken boards to those of you who have seen The Wizard of Oz to when, you know, they realize there's the wizard is behind that curtain and the Toto goes and pulls back the curtain and it's just one man pulling all these levers, creating all this smoke and all this stuff. And then he's like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? And I, I boards have been able to do that forever. Like they've been pulling these levers, they've been doing things and, and having discussions and making decisions that have created policies, practices, cultures, on campus and we pretty much often always lay that at the feet of the president. And so, but what we realize is that don't realize that there's people that are able to hide behind this curtain, this proverbial curtain and pull these levers that impact all of us on campus. Um, I think in the past few years, strangely enough, and I'm not even sure what kicked it all off, we just started paying more attention <laughs> to boards. Um, and I think we really saw kind of a peak moment this summer with the Nicole Hannah Jones case in UNC Chapel Hill. And I, I was I'm saying to people when I spoke about it, I think this is the first time people realize we don't really have accountability measures for boards. Um, and, and people kind of were like screaming in the sky, hoping something would happen, but we didn't really have a mechanism or a way to say, hey, this board isn't acting in the best interest of our institution, what do we do about it? And so now I think we're having a discussion around who's on our board, right? Who's on our board? What are the values? What are the mindsets? What are the frameworks that they work through that they're bringing to the board? And how does that impact the decision-making process, which ultimately will impact the decisions? And so a lot, the work um, that me and, and my colleagues, um, Dr. Dimitri Morgan and Dr. Raquel Raw have been working on is really um, thinking about how can boards approach decision-making in a way that issues of DEI are central to the decision-making process as opposed to something they slap on after they've already made the decision, which I think is what we usually see in practice. They make a decision and then they say, oh, wait, equity. Oh, wait, diversity. Oh, inclusion, if we even know what any of that means. And we just want to make sure that we kind of check the box that we talked about it. It's audit culture. When you describe it yes. that way, they're used to doing audits, right? So they right, do exactly. an audit after the fact. Exactly. And so what we're trying to get boards to see is um, 
one is that we we posit this idea that equity is a is a fiduciary duty. One of the things that um, often when we would talk to board members, it's like, well, that's not that's not what we're supposed to be worried about. That's right, like the the chief diversity officer or the, the president has to worry about that or some student affairs programmer girl programming people. And we're like, no, like equity is thinking about issues of equity and thinking about issues of diversity and inclusion are actually part of your duty of loyalty, your duty of obedience, your duty of care to the institution. If we're thinking about how do we ensure that this institution is successful and lives well beyond today, you have to think about the role that equity plays in making sure that that occurs. Um, and so we really push boards to really see equity as central to the job that they're doing, not something that they check off later. And I think when we, um, the other thing you talked about board diversity um, is really um, something we, we need to talk about more, but it's, um, I think for boards, they kind of feel like, well, we've, we tried. <laughs> it's, one right. of the, it's very right. similar to the faculty yes. we've heard for so many years, like, well, we want more diverse faculty. Where are they? Or they're just, they're not. They just don't come to us. We, we can't recruit interested. them. We don't have the money. Uh, yeah. Resources or things like that. Yeah. And, so, um, and so trying to get boards to see, right, that especially board members, um, the power of their social capital and and that the reality is the people are there, but they're pro they may not be in your networks, right? And so how do how do you access new networks so that you can bring new people in. And I think on the public side, it gets even trickier because most public boards are appointed by governors or um, state legislatures. And so really what we're dealing with on that end is, um, do we have people in political positions of power that see diversity as a value? Um, because if we don't have people there that see it as a value, it's not going to trickle down to the board member selections. And so that's a, another conversation that has to occur. But I think we are now starting to have a conversation. Um, I always joke with people when I started to say I wanted to study boards as a doctoral student. Um, everybody looked at me like cross-eyed, like, what do you, nobody cares. <laughs> and, so, um, and now people care. So that worked out yeah, well right. for me. But <laughs> Um, I think now we're seeing the impact, what it means when there are voices that are not at the table or not valued at the table. And so what is how that trickles down to the rest of the institution from everything to how budgets are approved and set to what policies are crafted on campuses um, to how we deal with crisis on campus. Um, and so I'm hoping that we begin to have that conversation and really think about how we can strategically diversify our boards and make more equity-centered decision-making. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because you you talk about Gen X, Mary, I think this is as a Gen Xer myself who sees themselves as fitting a board better maybe than a college presidency, right? Mm. What do you, advice do you have as the expert, as someone who cares and, and about- I'm on these, a board. <laughs> right, you know what I mean? Like those, those I, I mean, I've been on them before, but in institutions of higher ed, I think about my alma mater and I look at my alma mater's board and yeah. I think, wow, Everybody looks the same than when I graduated 30 years ago from my right. alma mater, right? And um, so I just, what do you, what do you say to folks? How do you, how do you even get those conversations going where your capital might not be 
monetary, right? But your yeah. capital could be training in DEI or engage, because I think your fiduciary argument is one about attracting students, right? Yeah. A stu students are starting to be so savvy about yeah. skipping all of these layers, right? And maybe skipping the president and going to the board and talking about yeah. divesting or talking about demands on campus. And yes. So what, what do you think as a, I mean, just to be a practical kind of yeah. conversation here with your expertise, what, what does one do when they're thinking, how do I, how do I make myself a viable person? Yeah, I think so. So I think the one, the first thing you have to do is, especially if you're looking at a specific institution, whether it be your alma mater or institution that you, um, you have an affinity towards, I think you have to figure out what's valuable to that institution, right? Um, yeah. um, again, it's a bit of an interest convergence. And so, um, you know, if, if they need people who have financial capital, then that's what they need. And if that's not what you, you have, how can you broker relationships, right? And in, in the development where they often calls, you can either give or you can get, right? Um, and so if you can say, hey, like, I, I may not can drop 30,000 every quarter or a year, right? But I do have these relationships with people in spaces that we could broker relationships with, whether that's foundations or philanthropists, um, whether that is um, working with communities, right? In a way that will give us a better relationship with communities that also makes us look good and increases in, um, in makes our brand better, right? So that we can sell ourselves better. I, I think I talk often in business terms because that's how a lot of poor people talk. Um, and so really thinking about how can you express value to the board and to the institution in a way in which they understand it and can appreciate it. I think the other thing too, right? A lot of this is a, a game of social capital. And so if you don't have the social capital, how do you get identifying how you get into the networks and in the spaces? I think one of the great ways to do that, right, um, is to get involved in alumni associations, right? Often this is a way to get um, access to people in development, access to leadership on campus. Um, you get to find out what's going on. And that's a great way to start to connect and, and um, get to kind of know the in and outs and the who's who on campus and get your name kind of in spaces um, so that people can be like, oh, you know, like Leanne has been around or she was doing this thing here. Or she, you know, she, she does this and X, Y, Z. She's expert this. Maybe we should bring her in to talk for a workshop. And these are, <laughs> these are the ways um, we get in those spaces. And then I think also just figuring out, I mean, I do this exercise with my students every year. I always ask them to name one person on the ODU board and no one ever knows. Um, <laughs> so I think getting to know who's on the board, finding out who they are, what they do and, and getting to know them, reaching out to them, being in spaces that they're in. And I, I, I think um, people, you know, we try to make it more convoluted, but just saying like, hey, I've been thinking about like, I want to be of service to the institution. I, 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 I know that like these are appointed positions, but how, how did you get on the board and with this? And I think more people than we realize, um, there's caveats to that, right? Of course, because, of course. Right? Right, of co I mean, let's not pretend like, yeah, right. I, you know. But yeah. I think people will be open to saying like, oh, well, I met this person or I was in this yeah. group or I was, you know, a lobbyist and then this happened, I've seen right. that happen, right? Um, and I think it'll at least give you insight into the different ways ones can have path 
to a board service. But um, as, as a researcher and my researcher brain, it's something we don't really have a lot of information on. And I hope one day to kind of do more research that particularly in the HBCU sector. Yeah. Um, we really don't know how people end up on boards. Like we, we don't. know kind of, you know, <laughs> we know kind of the functionality of right. it, right? Like, oh, you're, you're nominated and elected or you're selected right. or appointed. But the kind of um, intentional social capital building that happens that gets people on board, we don't really know much about, probably by design. And so I hope that we can learn more about it so we can identify the ways in which those processes um, perpetuate inequity um, and the way they perpetuate kind of exclusion of certain people from decision-making power and how can we change that. Felicia, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Listeners, as always, thank you for joining us. We'll be back in the spring with season five of View from Venus. Happy holidays and thanks for listening.